Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Good morning, Watertown Evangelical Free Church. The first good morning didn't count, but this one did. My name is Luke Job. I am the youth ministry director here at the Free Church, and I am so glad to see each one of you guys out here this morning. Even though it was a little bit foggy, even though it was a little bit warm and rainy, I am so glad to see each one of you guys make out here this morning. And if you are new here, this is your first time, or you haven't gotten connected with us yet, if you look in the pocket in front of you, unless you're in the front row, there should be this kind of uh, bookmark kind of thing. If you want to scan the QR code on there, you should be able to access our church uh, database and put your information in there. If not, you can go back to the welcome desk and talk to someone back there about getting connected with us because the reason I have you fill this out is because it's important to stay connected with us because we have a lot of stuff going on from adult ministries, men's, women's, uh, children's, and youth ministries, and missions. So many things different going on at the Free Church, and I would just love to have you guys be a part of that. Um, that's my little spiel for this morning. Would you guys join me in a word of prayer? Thank you, God, for this morning. Thank you for your grace and allowing us to even get up this morning and to walk in your mercy and your love and your everlasting forgiveness for us. Lord, your death and resurrection are what brought us here this morning. So, Lord, as we enter into a time of singing and this time of singing your praise, allow us to posture our hearts in order to praise you and your glorious and mighty name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning again, and welcome. Uh, I think that's the third time you've been welcomed, so I hope you realize we really are glad you're here. We want you here. Uh, If you're visiting, if you're joining us for the first time, I would love to meet you. If you have not met me, please... uh, Seek me out. I would love to, to get to know you. And welcome to those of you that are watching on our live stream. As you may have noticed, as we go through our prayer requests, there's a lot of people that aren't here this morning, some of whom are in the hospital. Some, maybe this fog was enough to keep them home. Some are traveling. Whatever your reason for being online, we welcome you as well here. Thank you for joining us. We are going to continue looking at the book of Judges. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Samson. So I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me. We're going to be in Judges chapter 13 when we start this morning. Uh, And we've been journeying through this book, and we've titled it Case Studies in Chaos. And we've highlighted some of the chaos in my life last week. I could probably do an interview in this room, and everybody would have some story of chaos over the last couple of weeks, something that has happened Uh, that has brought some chaos into your life. But our theme has been this idea from Judges chapter 17, that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this has been a pattern in this series. And if you've been tracking with this series, especially if you grew up in the church, there's maybe been a mix of names that you have known and names that you don't know as well. Or maybe you've read, but you didn't really know the story. You know, and kind of this, this pattern that we see in Judges of rebellion and sin and turning away and falling into servitude and then coming to repentance and turning back to the Lord, we've kind of seen a similar pattern, I would argue, in maybe transitioning back and forth from a well-known name and judge to a less well-known name and judge. And so we started with Joshua, who I would argue for most of us, you know, especially if we grew up in church again, we heard about Joshua and the battle of Jericho and we knew that story a little bit. And uh, then we talked about Deborah, who is one of those judges that's a little less talked about in church. And so maybe that was a new story for some of you. And then we, we jumped back in um, to Gideon. And oh yeah, Gideon. We know Gideon and we know, you know, uh, that story a little bit. And maybe there's some new aspects of it or a new way to think about it that we came up with, but we knew the story. And then we jumped into Jephthah, who, if I'm honest, is one of those that I think before I started this series, if you had told me to list all the judges in the book of Judges, I don't know that I would have listed Jephthah. Um, So, but we looked at Jephthah and now we're going to be at Samson. And Samson, again, is one of those stories that if we grew up in church, you go, oh, I know this story. This is, this is that story I learned in Sunday school. And, uh, And yet, it's one of those that I kind of wonder why we tell it to little kids. I mean, 
it's kind of a disturbing story. As you see when we get into it, Samson is not a great character. Samson is not a person that I want my kids to idolize and grow up to be like. Um, but we're going to look at Samson. We're going to see what God might be doing in that story anyway. But before we do that, we ended with, with Jephthah last week and kind of cut off the last few verses. And I'm just going to acknowledge that. Because there's, again, like we saw earlier, just a few judges that are referenced that are judges we wouldn't know hardly at all. And there's very little information given about them. And this is at the end of, of chapter 12. And it's three judges, Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon. And there's not much in there. In fact, there's a little bit of a reference to they had this many kids who rode this many donkeys on some of them, or they're from this town, but some there's even less information. And, and I, I reference it just kind of as that reminder again that while we're reading about Samson and that's going on in this part of Israel, over here something else entirely might be going on. And we don't really know much about these characters. In fact, it's really interesting that they were included to begin with because they're included with such little information. So either these were names that maybe people back then, you could throw them out there and they'd go, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. Or maybe not. And we don't really know what that means to us today. But I did read this quote that I want to share with you that I think kind of casts some light on this idea from Scripture. And it says this, The detail in these accounts is too scanty to be sure of the intended meaning. However, it is possible that the writers intended to emphasize that life in Israel was not all about the major heroes that leadership was spread between different tribes, and that although, and this is an argument from silence, the minor judges listed here were no more successful at leading Israel to unity or to long-term covenant adherence than some of their more famous colleagues. The idea that, you know, they're listed here kind of to give us this idea that life goes on in other parts of Israel while Samson shows up. Life is going on. You know, people are still going through those major life changes, they're having kids. They're raising their family. A kid moves out. A, a, a family member passes away. A family member gets married. And, and all these major life changes are happening in the midst of this chaos. It's not just about Samson. God is at work in a broken place. And sometimes that work is in little ways. And it's tempting to read scripture and look to the story of Abraham or David or Moses or Peter or Paul or Samson and go, why isn't God at work like that in my life? Why, why am I not experiencing these incredible things that they experienced? And maybe it's because we are Ibzan. Somebody just living out their life serving the Lord in a world that maybe doesn't acknowledge and doesn't doesn't follow the Lord with them, and maybe in a way that the world doesn't respond in ways we want, where, where it doesn't really change the outcome it feels like. Sometimes, again, we like to see ourselves as the hero of the story. I want to be Moses. I don't want to be one of the Israelites who dies in, in Egypt in captivity. But wherever God has placed us, our call is the same. Our call is to consistency. Our call is to follow him no matter where he has placed us. And if he has placed us as he has today in 2024 in North America, we have a call to live out here faithfully. Whether it makes the news or not. Whether scripture would write about us if it were being written today or not. We have a call to consistently follow the Lord whether it makes waves that we can see or not. That's, I think, part of the reason, in my, in my interpretation of this, that's part of the reason these names are in there, to remind us that we're not all Samson and Gideon and even Jephthah. Some of us are Ibsen. Somebody that, if I were to throw a list of names of judges listed in the book of Judges on the screen, nobody would have thought that was one of the judges. He, he wouldn't have made the top five on Family Feud. So whatever God's intention for including these it seems to get at the idea that we've been looking at all throughout this book that God is at work in broken places. And God can be at work in the broken places of your life, even if it seems to be in ways that don't really change anything. Except maybe they do for you. And so we're going to look now at Samson and we're going to kind of see a counterpoint 
We're going to see a counterpoint in Samson. Like I said, I don't think he's necessarily the hero that we like to think he is sometimes. And so we're going to look at Samson as this counterpoint and also see that even though Samson really isn't a great guy, God uses him anyways. And God is at work in broken places. And so let's start by looking at at Judges chapter 13. And we'll see, first of all, in Samson, a godly heritage and upbringing. Samson gets all the benefits to start off his life. We see a godly heritage and, and upbringing. And so before we start this passage, which I'll read in a second, that we are supposed to, as readers of the book of Judges, see the contrasts that are rampant in this passage. In this story of Samson, there is an intentional desire for us to see significant contrast between what is expected and what happens. Okay, so we're supposed to see that. And as a contrast, God is working in broken places despite the best of intentions, in spite of our failings, in spite of our anger, in spite of our sin, and ultimately in spite of our fallibility as humans. And we are supposed to see that in Samson. That God is at work in spite of who Samson is. So let's start in Judges chapter 13, the first five verses. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to pause there for one second. Anybody sick of hearing that yet? Because it sure seems to happen a lot in the book of Judges. And at the risk of being a broken record, remind yourself that if a book was written about my life, I think there'd be a lot of, again, Bruce strayed away from what the Lord called him to. So again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so again, we see the again, and and I'm not gonna focus on that. I kind of already addressed it, but I do wanna point out that here we see a family serving the Lord in a community and culture that does not which should be an encouragement to us. No matter where God places you, if you're in a community that loves and serves the Lord, you can love and serve the Lord. But if you are in a community like Samson's parents are, that does not, you can still be faithful. We can still love and serve the Lord. And we see a family seeking God in spite of Israel's apostasy and in spite of the oppression of the Philistines. God is working in broken places. And God works in broken places and cares about our individual trials. There's a reason we pray about these things in the services. Not because these things are too small. On the contrary, God cares about even the little things in our life. And we should know that God cares. Because here, how do we know that God cares? Because God shows up to a woman who is barren and childless and acknowledges that pain and that hurt especially in a community and a culture at that time that's so elevated that need to have children. And I know there are women in this room who have suffered some of that pain, that have suffered some of that pain of seeing everybody else around them have a kid and they haven't had one. And in this culture, that was even more so elevated and a hurtful experience. And people would often look on you as broken, as maybe it's your sin that's causing this. And so we see God meeting somebody here, and we see the obedience of Samson's parents in a broken world that shows us the merits of obedience. And obedience, I think we will see, brings blessing. That doesn't always mean you get what you want, but it does bring blessing. Obedience brings blessing, and disobedience brings consequences. Not always right away. But we're going to see that, that there's a blessing for them in this moment for their obedience. 
And so, once again, we're seeing a woman lifted up, and we're going to see this. We've already seen it in Scripture with Abraham. We're going to see it again with Samuel. We're going to see it again with Mary and the birth of Jesus. This idea of God meeting somebody and lifting up a woman, especially in this moment of raising her child and having a child. But one other thing that it highlights that we might miss the significance of is this Nazarite vow that she is taking as well as Samson. We tend to read into it all about Samson. Samson has to take this Nazarite vow, but notice she does as well. She is called to the same Nazarite vow. You will drink no fermented wine. And it doesn't, no fermented drink, it doesn't give an end gate. It doesn't say until the baby is born. You know, this was not just a, you know, pregnancy thing. She is called to something. She is called to something for a duration. And some of the things are mentioned here, two of the things significantly, this idea of no wine or other fermented drink, which actually the Nazarite vow goes a little deeper. It says things like no grapes or raisins either at all. Not just wine, fermented drinks, no grapes, no raisins. Um, No razor as a haircut, like that's mentioned here. One thing that isn't mentioned as much is a dead body. Now, there's a mention of unclean food, but there's no mention of dead bodies. But that was part of the Nazarite vow. If you were to take a Nazarite vow, you could not touch a dead body. Now, generally, there was a time limit on it. Most often, a Nazarite vow was something somebody would willingly enter into for a time period. I'm going to, you know, uh, be a Naz- take this Nazarite vow for the next year. In fact, we see the Apostle Paul do something similar when he comes back to Jerusalem before he's arrested. He comes into the temple and because people have accused him of not being, uh, of contradicting too much, I'll say, the Jewish laws and customs, he takes a vow similar to a Nazarite vow where he shaves his head to mark the start of it and then does this ritual to show his devotion to the Lord. And similarly, some of us will do something like that when it comes to the time of Lent. We'll come into the time of Lent as a time to prepare our hearts for the death and resurrection of our Lord on Good Friday and Easter, and people will give something up for a time to remind themselves of what God gave up for us. This is a similar thing, but for Samson and his mother, there is no time limit on it. It's not you will do this for 30 days or six days. This is a lifestyle for them. This is a call to live this out. And so we see Samson starts off on the right foot, a godly upbringing. Since she is the one taking the vow as a Nazarite, she's also the one the angel visits, like Mary. And where Joseph gets a, a dream and an encouragement, Mary is the one who gets the first visit. And we see that with Samson's mother as well. In fact, I think it's really funny that in the story, she gets a visit from an angel. She is the one called to the Nazarite vow. She is the one told she will have a child. Her husband doesn't believe her and says, we should get this angel to come back. And notice that when the angel comes back, it goes again to the woman, not the disbelieving husband. And his message to the husband is, you should believe your wife. That's his message. You should do everything I told her to do. Verses, uh, chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. The angel of the Lord answered, your, mu- your wife must do all I have told her. And then he repeats it for the husband's benefit. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her to make it very clear. For those of you in the room as parents, be encouraged. Be encouraged that we are called to lift up our children. We are called to set our children off on the right foot. We are called to obey the Lord and model that to our kids And Samson's parents start off that way really well. They really do. God calls us to raise our children up to follow the Lord. In spite of a society that might not be in complete alignment with us, we are called to raise our children. And we are called to do that not in vain. As we see, Samson will trail off from this pretty quickly. That isn't uh, letting us know that "Ah, it's hopeless, but do it anyway. We are called to raise our children, and that call is not in vain. God will continue to call to himself his followers. Remember that we all experience that. That maybe some of us grew up in a context where maybe the Lord wasn't lifted up fully, or maybe we had parents that discipled us really well, despite the fact that the world has always been against us to some level. And yet here we are, 
So there is hope. So be encouraged, parents. Verses 24 and 25. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in Mahena Dan, between Zorah and Eshtael. The story of Samson will now make a significant shift in the next chapter. We're going to turn the page and see a different Samson. So what we are supposed to see here is a Samson who is given every benefit. He grew up in a Christian home. He got a good Christian education, and we're going to see that isn't who he turns out to be. We're going to see a story of a man who is selfish, vengeful, and completely unconcerned with God's calling on his life. And so, again, for us as parents, and I'm speaking to parents, when I say parents, I mean both biological and spiritual. I know there are some people in this room who have some kids in their life that are not their own, but that they care deeply for. For us as parents, there is a warning here along with the encouragement. We cannot assume that because we have given our kids everything we have to offer, that they will grow up to follow the Lord. We cannot assume that. We have to take steps. We have to do everything we can. We cannot sit back and go, well, it's okay. I send my kid to youth group. I send my kid to church. I signed him up for this camp. I signed him up for that retreat. I put him in Awana. I put him in all these programs. Therefore, they will grow up to follow the Lord. We cannot outsource the discipling of our children. There are a lot of good things out there in our community. We have access to so many resources for the spiritual development of our kids. But the temptation as a parent is then to sit back and go, it's somebody else's job. It's the youth pastor's job. It's the kids ministry director's job. It's the teacher at the Christian school's job. No, it's not. It's our job, parents. Those are assets, those are resources for us, but do not outsource the spiritual development of your children. We don't know what Samson's parents did, but we see other stories in Scripture where people sit back and go, because I took this Nazarite vow, therefore God will make them follow him. We need to be intentional. Pray for your kids. Live out your faith in front of your kids in an ongoing and life-affirming way. Talk about your spiritual development. Don't assume that because the church is or the school is or whatever that your kids are fine. We cannot outsource the discipleship of our kids. And so we have no clue whether or not Samson's parents did this well or poorly, but we do see that despite the best godly upbringing available to them, Samson's life does not follow the Lord consistently. He does not follow the Lord with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Samson's life in Judges is best described as a story of selfishness, revenge, and consequences. Samson is, is, is described as a person who is selfish, who seeks revenge, and suffers the consequences of his constant refusal to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And the first thing we see, the first glimpse we see, the first decision Samson makes on his own is to pursue a marriage with a Philistine woman, which is something that God's people were called not to do. So we see the start of this story that Samson's parents are still trying to encourage Samson to follow the Lord. They try and talk him out of it. Come on, Samson, there's got to be somebody in our own community, somebody who serves the Lord that you can marry instead. And they seek to redirect him, but Samson is not swayed. Now, we as readers will see that God is using this moment. God is working here in ways that do not make sense to Samson's parents. And God seems to be using Samson in spite of his selfishness here, rather than causing him to seek something he should not. And that's a distinction we need to be careful of all the way through this story. We're going to see time and again the Spirit of the Lord come upon Samson in spite of some of the ways he's acting, rather than because of the ways he's acting. But we cannot go back and change Samson into somebody he is not. It'd be interesting if we could, if we could go back and wave a magic wand 
and turned Samson with all of his strength into somebody who loved the Lord like David. This could have been an entirely different story. But we don't know. And, I, and we don't know means we don't know, and so I don't want to make an argument on the hypothetical what if, but understand that as we read the story, we are seeing a broken person who God is using in spite of their attitude and actions, not because of. And I think that's something we have to be careful of. And so we're going to pick up the story in Judges 14, verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. And in it, he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. And we see in this the first glimpses of a very selfish man. A selfish man who is taking everything for granted. He has broken already several of the Nazarite vows. He's in a vineyard. And that isn't just, I happen to be wandering along and there was a vineyard. We see some intentionality here. He's in a vineyard. And you could say, well, he wasn't eat, drinking wine necessarily. We're supposed to assume he was breaking that part of the Nazarite vow. He's in a vineyard. How many of us go wandering a little too close to something we know we shouldn't do? I'm not going to, you know, do anything here, but I'm going to walk in the door and check it out. How many of us have found ourselves in a vineyard we knew we weren't supposed to be in? He's in a vineyard. We see him uh, killing the lion. That, that we could argue is self-defense. But later on, notice that he intentionally turns aside and goes and finds it. That's a dead body. He sought it out. He's, he's going the next step in, a little deeper, a little farther. He scoops out some honey from the honeycomb that he finds inside and gives it to his mom, who's taken the same vow to not eat anything unclean. Food from a dead animal is definitely unclean by their law. He is entirely taking everything for granted. His strength, his Nazarite vow, which doesn't seem to matter to him at all, and he's even ignoring those who have cared about him and defended him. This is a selfish man. And eventually, due to the same selfishness, he seeks to scam some Philistine men at his wedding. I'm going to tell you a riddle, and it's not really a riddle. It's not that Samson was bad at riddles. It's that he's trying to manipulate them. Like we read it and we're like, that's not really a riddle. They weren't supposed to figure it out. That was intentional. He's manipulating them. He says, if you can answer this riddle, I'll give you 30 linen clothes. If you cannot, you have to give me 30 linen clothes. This is a money grab at his wedding. And they manipulate him back. They respond in kind. He manipulates them. They go and convince his new wife to seek out the answer. And at the last minute, she gets it from him. They come and answer him and then hold their hands out for the 30 linen garments. He, in a rage, leaves, wanders away. I mean, this is the equivalent of a several-hour drive. In today's day and age, imagine that you're getting married here in Watertown. You feel manipulated. And so in a rage, you drive to Chicago to get even. You're pretty mad to drive all the way to Chicago, kill 30 people, and drive back. This is not a minor tantrum. We see that here. We see a different person. And again, God uses this situation to bring about a confrontation between God and the Philistines. And really, we'll see later on, it's not really the Philistines, it's the God of the Philistines that God is confronting. But we are seeing here a revenge spiral. And so he comes back in a rage. He tosses the, the garments at their feet and storms off. And then we'll see the story go on. 
And we'll see that because of his rage, they respond in kind by killing his new wife who had been given away to somebody else. And we see this, they get mad and respond violently. I get mad and respond violently back. They get mad and respond even more violently. I get mad and respond more violently. We're seeing a revenge spiral. His wife is given away after he strikes down a bunch of Philistines and he goes to visit her later only to find she has been given away to somebody else. And we read this in Judges 15 verse 3. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. And throughout the story, we're going to see Samson described as a leader of Israel, but we see only a young man prone to anger who serves his own interests. Samson kills more people, the Philistines react. Samson treats the Philistines as an enemy only when his own personal aims are thwarted. And it's interesting that aside from when they contradict what he wants, he seems to be able to live pretty peaceably with them. He wanders into their town to find a wife and nobody seems to care, even Samson. But when they confront what he wants, now they're the enemy. This is not God-ordained. We're supposed to see him in contradiction to what the scriptures call people to. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, God's law shows us it was different. God says that it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And earlier on in Exodus, we, Exodus, we see two things. First of all, that deliberate murder is forbidden. It is. Deliberate murder is forbidden. Samson's raging away, killing 30 men and coming back is forbidden. That's not how God calls people to act. But later in Exodus 21, we see the limits of retribution in verses 23 through 25. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And this is a system called Talion Law that did two things. Number one, it didn't allow a wealthy person to buy their way out of punishment. There is no you can pay a fine and get out of it option in Talion Law. But the second thing is, and there's a lot of historical evidence to back this up, that this is how it was understood at that time. Aside from the life-for-life life portion, the rest of it was to limit how far you could go. It was not necessarily always taken literally, if you punch me, I punch you back, and that's even. It limits it. If you punch me, I can't cut off your arm. That's what it's seeking to do. You cannot go beyond. That's what Talion, Samson goes beyond. You take my wife away, I kill more of your people. And they respond in kind. You kill our people, we're going to kill your wife that was taken away. And it spirals out of control. And this is a reminder to ourselves. Oftentimes when we feel harmed, when we feel wronged, we do the same thing as Samson. We might not kill people. I hope nobody in here has driven to another town and killed 30 people because they were mad. But don't we sometimes do the same thing? Somebody insulted me, so I'm going to start a rumor about them. I'm going to damage them in ways that they hurt me. I'm going to take it on myself. And we feel justified. God, they hurt me. And God's law is different. We are called by Jesus to turn the other cheek. Samson doesn't do that. And we have something that Samson didn't have. We have the model of Jesus Christ. We have before us Jesus who was sinless and took the penalty for our sins on himself and died in our place. We know what we actually deserve. Samson didn't have the benefit of looking to Jesus Christ. Our ultimately, ultimately, our reminder is where we stand with the Lord. If we truly want things to be fair, remember what fair means for us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. If we want fair, remember that's fair. We can think too highly of ourselves. When we feel wrong, we want to lash out. Be careful. We as sinners forgiven by God need to remember the first part of Romans 3.23 before we get to the second half. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We need to remember that part. Samson lived a life of revenge and selfishness, and though God used him, that is not a model for us to follow. We should not seek revenge on our terms. And so we see this pattern continuing with Samson of revenge and selfishness. And notice how this section ends in Judges 15, verse 18. This is after he again, and this pattern goes back and forth and back and forth, and now he has killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. And then he cries out in Judges 15, 18, because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Sound familiar? He's really no different than the people of Israel who get freed from slavery in Egypt only to cry out, are there not enough graves in the desert? in Egypt, that we must die here in the desert? What a selfish response. God, you've given me this great victory, and before I even acknowledge that, I'm just gonna look around and go, where's the water? Sin has consequences. And even when God has used us despite our sins, when we cry out, but God, I was doing it for your glory, doesn't cut it. God is the one at work here. And we can often think that God exists to support my viewpoint, to support my ideas, to support what I want. And we can start looking to scripture to find that verse that substantiates what I believe. Instead of looking at scripture and going, God, I want you to convict me through this. I wanna be conformed to be more like you. We start getting it backwards where we, like Samson, start looking around going, God, I'm thirsty. Why is there no water here? And that is not how God works. We need to make Jesus Christ the Lord of our life, our feelings, our views, our everything. Otherwise, he is not our Lord. He's our genie. And we have a scary reminder from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those are scary words. The call for us is a call to consistently serve the Lord, but he must be Lord. Samson is being used by God because God is trying to do something larger in his community beyond who Samson is. In fact, if you go back and look, this is one of the first times in Judges that we see that the, the judge, Samson, shows up and there is no appeal by the people of Israel for, for redemption. So God is doing something here that's unique and different. They have not repented yet and Samson shows up on the scene. But that doesn't condone everything he does. But God is still using him. And we need to be careful who we hold up and celebrate because we think God is doing something. God may very well look to that person or ourselves and say, you may have done things in my name, but I don't know you. That should humble us. That should give us pause. That should cause us to do some soul searching, including myself. I, I have to be careful. We all have to be careful what we claim to speak for the Lord. And now we get to Samson's violent end. The call to consistency is clear and becomes even more clear as we approach his end. And so far, the image of Samson we have seen is not encouraging. And it seems like we've been on a downward step with every judge. We started with Joshua, whose call to the people was, serve the Lord. And then we go to Deborah, who really is our best judge. She serves the Lord wholeheartedly. From there, we go to Gideon, who starts off pretty good, but then encourages people to worship his ephod that he makes from the loot. Then we go to Jephthah, who gets into a civil war over a perceived affront. And now we're at Samson. It doesn't seem to be getting better. And we're going to see when the book of Judges ends that it just falls apart. But we seem to be on this downward struggle. And now we have seen Samson break every part of his Nazarite vow except one. 
And despite all this, God has used it. And chapter 16 starts off no differently. Samson sees something, Samson wants something, and Samson takes. Judges 16, verse 4. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So for those of us that grew up in church or the Sunday school, this is the part of the story we know. We know about Delilah. But I would caution you, there's some stuff we know and there's some stuff we assume. One of the things we assume is that Delilah was a Philistine. But it doesn't say that. No, it's reasonable. It's possible. It's even probable. Every woman he's been with so far has been a Philistine. And she seems to have close associates with other Philistines. But we don't know that. So be careful when you read scripture about what you assume and what it actually says. And I say that only because, again, Delilah gets a bad rap here. And in ways she should. Again, she's not the hero of the story. But remember who Samson is. He has a history of manipulating people. He has a history of seeking what he wants. He has a history of abusing his power and authority and position. It should be no surprise, as well known as he is, that the people know he's in town Remember, uh, part of the story I haven't read, at one point they thought they would trap him in town and he lifts the gates off of the city wall and walks out. He's known in town. They know exactly who he is. It is no surprise that a woman responds in kind to the way he acts. That doesn't excuse her behavior, but remember who Samson is as we read this story. And it begs the question when she starts to try and manipulate him why he doesn't pick up on it. And I think it's because it's the behavior he expects. He is a manipulator. And so when people respond manipulatively to him, that's what he expects to happen. All the way through, when he storms out of his wedding and his father-in-law justifiably assumes that therefore he's not planning to go through with the wedding, how does he respond? You hate me. You gave my wife away. He goes, yeah, you stormed out of the wedding. Generally, when you leave somebody at the altar, the assumption is you don't want to be married. And how does he respond? He responds by killing a bunch of people. Samson is a certain type of person that we should see. We should not be surprised that he perceives manipulation as normal. So he doesn't walk away. And this is where we start to see the consequences come in at his end. Picking it up again in verse six. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried and she tied him up with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. And notice the focus all the way through. And we're not going to read all this, but it happens again and again and again. And the focus is always on himself. The focus is on if you do this to me, if you do that to me, if you do this to me, if you do that to me. It's not on his Nazarite vow. It's never all the way through. We as readers have seen the Lord came upon him. That's not who he's acknowledging. No, it's me. If you tie me up, if you braid my hair together. And we get a little bit of a glimpse into how he thinks because we see time and again him use this number seven, which is a holy number. Seven braids, seven bowstrings, seven new ropes. There's a little bit that we should start to pick up on that as much as he thinks it's God, at best he thinks he's manipulating God like a good luck charm. I'm going with my lucky number here. But at worst, he honestly thinks that he's manipulating God. That I can make God do what I want as long as I don't shave my head. This is the image we should see. Eventually, she convinces him He gets closer and closer to the truth. 
And finally he caves. He tells her it is his hair and she shaves it in his sleep. And notice the verse. Judges 16, verse 20. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Finally, his sin catches up with him. Finally, he suffers the consequences of his sin. All along, he thought it was really himself. And now he realizes it wasn't. The Lord had left him. His disobedience, his selfishness, his arrogance had finally caught up with him. And now we see the one and only, in this story, redeemable quality of Samson. He's hit rock bottom. And now he's going to change. And now he's going to turn. And how many of us have done the same thing? We've gone our own way and it seems to keep working out. As long as the paychecks keep coming in, as long as you know, my grades stay up where they are, I'm gonna convince myself I'm doing it on my own power. And then when it falls apart, instead of looking back and saying, all along God was working in my life, we suddenly go, God, where did you go? Have we been acknowledging God all the way through? Or do we think it's his job just to keep the, the, the fires burning? And in verse 22, his hair starts to grow back. But now, to be very clear, the, judge, the author of Judges shows us who God has been focused on all along. This is a war not between the Philistines and Samson, nor even God and Samson. Once again, God is taking aim at the idolatry of other people. Which may give us a glimpse into why God was using Samson despite his failings. For Samson, the idolatry had been himself. And for the Philistines, it was Dagon. And so we pick up the story. Samson's hair is starting to grow back. That's already happened. And we'll pick it up in verse 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. And both groups are wrong. Samson has learned it is not him. The Philistines have not. The Philistines are still worshiping Dagon. They're still giving credit to their God. All the way along... Samson's works and efforts, God was seeking to use him to get the, the people of the Philistines and the Israelites to turn back to him and they had been ignoring it in the same way Samson had. But we are gonna see repentance in Samson and we're gonna see him finally acknowledge God. And God is using Samson to fight Dagon despite Samson's fighting for himself. Picking it up in verse 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me, please. God, strengthen me just once more. And let me, with one blow, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. He's changed, not completely. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. And so as we end there, I want to challenge us to walk away with some things as reminders. First of all, as parents. And I said this already, but don't outsource the discipleship of your kids. Don't outsource their faith development. Take an active role. Second, God works in broken places through broken people. And that's been a theme all the way through. Be careful, brothers and sisters. Evidence of God working does not mean that everything about that person is God condoned. Again, and I say that even about myself. There's a reason we put the scripture passages on the screen. Read these passages yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Third is the call to consistency. All the way through, we see somebody who is not consistent and we see how often they get themselves in trouble. And even though God uses them, 
we, could want, we are supposed to wonder, what if? What if Samson had served the Lord with his whole heart, soul, and mind and strength? And we wonder that because at the end, when he finally does work in conjunction with the Lord, we see him make the biggest impact. What if he had had that impact all the way through? So the challenge is for us, all those times where we find success on our own, what if instead of doing it on our own, we did it with the Lord? What if we serve the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? But finally, our last reminder, our last lesson, it's never too late. It's never too late to repent. Samson was not a model of character, but he is a model of repentance. We can always repent. We can always turn to the Lord and say, God, I've been doing it my way too long. And God, here I turn to you and ask you, ask you to, to take over. Samson at the very end finally acknowledges that God had been the source of his physical strength all along. And he repents. It is never too late. So if you're in a spot where you think you are too far gone, hear from Samson that you are not. The Lord loves you. The Lord cares about you. But you need to repent and turn to him. And God will take it. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you work in broken places. And through broken people, God, we are all broken people. And God, it's easy to sit here and look at Samson and see all of his faults and flaws and think we are so much better than him. But God, we are all sinners. God, we stand before you needing your salvation. And so God, whether we are early on in our journey, God, or whether we are coming to the end, only you know, but Lord, we turn to you and say, we need you now. God, we repent And we know that you can cover a lifetime of sin and disobedience. So Lord, help us to turn to you now, God, and help us to walk consistently with you from here on. That unlike Samson, a new page might be turned today that leads to a lifetime of obedience rather than the last second. But God, we know that you are faithful and you are good. And we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.